Good morning. I'll be reading Acts 5 with you. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Before we get rolling here, I'd like to pray for some things going on. We didn't have pastoral prayer this morning, and we're commanded to pray for people, especially in our city and world that need God's help. So let's take just a couple minutes and start with that, can we? Father, we we lift up a number of things that um, matter to us and to what we're taught about your will in the scriptures. Um, We uh, we lift up... um, that the Supreme Court of our nation is trying to figure out um, how to create a land that's sufficiently free and yet supportive of the most fundamental building block of human society, the family. And we pray that you would bring about something that, um, that is helpful to the ends of one, of one of the most difficult and worthwhile things, the lifelong bond of monogamous complementary union between people passing on life and forming godliness in a new generation. And... We pray that you would bring about ends that are just and good, and we pray that you would also bring about peace in the midst of the very, the difficulty of that um, among the people of our nation. Uh, we lift up also the, the people in the city of Baltimore, and we know other places are experiencing relatively similar things. We specifically pray for that city right now. We pray for the people that are in, in charge of providing um, order in that city, um, And we pray that in the exertion of just force, they would have proper restraint when it's necessary and proper activity when it's necessary. We pray that you would bring about a peace in that city. We pray that they would have a testimony of people releasing um, their desire for any violence. We also pray for the people whose livelihoods are bound up with the stores and shops in the city, the people whose jobs are there, that you would provide for them and that you'd protect their livelihood. We also pray, Father, for the city and its decay and its problems and its its needs. And we pray, Father, um, for the reason why the people who are angry there are angry. Without accepting some of their behavior, we 
we want to embrace and we care very much about their their feelings and the experiences of their lives and what is necessary for the rejuvenation of that place and that home. And we pray, Father, that you would bring forth people, you would bring forth your church, you would bring forth wisdom and truth, that you would bring forth cooperation and the things that are actually necessary to bring a revitalizing and a civilizing and a and an honoring way of living together in that city. We pray for the good of those people. We pray for the good of everyone in that city, and we pray that you would do things that have been yet unseen, and that out of ashes you would grow something very beautiful and very good. And we pray that many lessons would be learned from it by all. And we don't know what else, I don't know what else to pray besides that, Father. We know that there's a thousand prayers around this globe internationally from um, from Eastern Europe all the way through to the border of China and the unrest and Nepal's earthquake and all these things. We pray, Father, that you would help in this world the people who don't even pray to you, that we would stand for them and we would ask on their behalf that you would help them and that you would show yourself through it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. So we, whipped, we decided to find like a really encouraging and very like upbeat passage for this morning. And so we settled on this one with Ananias and Sapphira dying. And so I, I've prepared a really peppy sermon for you. Uh, one of the things that um, is pretty universal, I've talked about how like um, authority in human life is universal and a bunch of things related to that. But one of the things that's also true about authority is that in relationship to it, Basically, all humans are pretty much dirty hypocrites in relationship to authority. Let me try to give you an example. If you ask the normal person, hey, do you think we should put, you know, surveillance cameras up, like, in lots of places so that, you know, people are safe and people who do stuff wrong can get caught, and don't you think that's a good idea? There's a lot of people who are like, yeah, we should do that, because I don't want to get mugged, right? And then we're like, do you like the surveillance cameras that they put at stoplights to catch you when you go through right after it turns red so they can charge you 82 to $478? They go, I don't really like those ones. We should put those cameras somewhere else, right? <coughs> or when it comes to like authoritative leaders like, you know, like police officers, right? We kind of want somebody who's going to be nice when they're a leader, right? Like, we don't like to be told what to do gruffly. We'd like people to be like, hey, sir, I think you look nice in that shirt. Would you mind parking in a different spot, right? And yet, we don't want somebody who's so nice that they're ineffectual, right? So, like, the guy, the German guy here on the left, like, that mustache is not intended to intimidate, okay? And I kind of wonder, like, if he had to break up a fight, if I was getting beat to death, if he could do that with his little radio, you know what I'm saying? And then the other guy, I'm kind of like, I don't know if y'all want him helping me. I'm not really sure what he's going to do. And I'm not judging him for his tattoos. Like, that face, he's just trying to be B.A. Baracus and to communicate to that to us. And I just don't really know. And, and we're always flopping around between like, well, I want somebody tough. I, I, wanna, I want somebody who kick, kicks them behind. I just don't want him to kick my behind. Right? Or I want somebody who's nice. I just want somebody who's, who's really tough on my enemies, though. But not me when they want them to be tough on me. And we have this kind of like, feeling related to authority. You know what I'm saying? Um, and one of the main realities of authority that has been part of the philosophy of the world for quite a while is that one of the most fundamental factors in anybody who has authority actually having any moral authority and any integrity in that authority is that everybody who's in authority is supposed to be in their position disinterested. Now, I remember nobody teaching me this when I went through public education and private education as well, that I thought that meant people who weren't interested in anything. And so I remember a seminary professor saying that the book of Job was about disinterested faith. And I said, I don't think God is interested in us being not interested in him because I've been working with teenagers for several years now and it's not that fun. And he said, you think that because you're terrifyingly ignorant? Because disinterested doesn't mean not interested, even though if you go on the internet, it does give that as the second definition. The actual meaning of the word disinterested is that there is no bias or no influence in your considerations based on who it's about. So if the question is, should Jimmy go to jail? Whether or not Jimmy is your son doesn't enter into it, even if he is. Right? 
Uninterested means I don't care. Right? One um, tweeting person said it this way. Disinterested means unbiased. Uninterested means not interested. Judges should be disinterested. Knitters might be uninterested in model trains. Right? One of the things that we struggle with, because we do not understand that that is the fundamental bedrock of integrity and authority, is we do not think God is disinterested because we assume that if God is disinterested, he must be uninterested. And the Bible says everywhere he's deeply interested in us. Right? All through the Bible, is God interested in us? Absolutely he's interested in us. He cares about every human being he's made. He really loves and cares about you and me and all of us incredibly deeply. And so we assume that if he loves us and he has empathy for us, he'll do whatever we need, no matter what we are or what we desire. And we don't believe that he will actually have the integrity in his goodness to be disinterested towards you and me. But here's the problem. He is. He is disinterested towards you and towards me. That's why God can deeply love every person and there can still be a doctrine of hell and that human beings can receive divine condemnation even though he loves all of us. Because God is not uninterested in you. He's not uninterested in you at all. He loves you. And he's invited you to redemption. He cares so deeply. But when it comes to who and what we are and what our place in the universe must be and whether or not we participate in salvation, God is interested and he's also disinterested in his integrity and truthfulness towards us. One of the things is we all, we all want to know somebody. Not really like that. But when you ask people, do you want people in authority to treat everybody justly? Almost everybody will say, yes. Oh, absolutely. You're like, do you want police to treat everybody you know, equally and treat them all fairly. We go, absolutely. And then if you show up at a restaurant and it's a two and a half hour wait, but you know the host and that person says, hey, I can get you a table. What, what's your response? Thank you, Jim. Right? Because you don't mind if somebody you know will usher you to the front of the line. Right? And it just, it just shows that we're hypocrites. We're just flat hypocrites. Like, we want everybody to treat everybody fine, but I also want to know a police officer or a lawyer that can make my ticket go away. That's what we're like. It's just a fact. And because that's true, one of the things God has to do over and over and over again with us, one of the bedrock principles of what he has to teach us over and over and over is that he isn't like that. We're like that. And we're like that not because we're created in the divine image. We're like that because our divine image has been infected by the sinful nature. It's part of our corruption. And because of that, it creates an enormous misunderstanding in our relationship with God. When we read through this passage, one of the things that we need to recognize and what should emerge from these verses is that God is enormously alarming <laughs> for sinful human beings. He's a very alarming person. And he's also amazing. And his alarmingness and his amazingness work together perfectly. And when you, we, you and I actually grow in maturity and understanding what God is really like, his alarmingness is part of his amazingness. We worship that part of what he's like just as much as any other part. The God of the scriptures is both terrifying and wondrous. He's marvelous and ponderous, disturbing and fascinating, distressing and astonishing. And the effect that that should have on us is that if we believe that, we should be both amazed and alarmed by God. You can see in verse 13, when it talks about the effect of Ananias and Sapphira dying, what effect did that have on people? Well, people who weren't Christians didn't dare mingle into the group of Christians when they got together in Solomon's colonnade. And yet, you keep reading the verses, everybody was still drawn to them. I mean, think about that. They were, people were terrified. Nobody dared join them, and yet everybody was drawn to them. Why? Because in that moment, God had so sort of purified that situation and shown his real character by striking two people dead and then healing and, and caring for people and meeting their physical needs. People who were not part of the church were being healed. And when people saw those two things together in the church from God, they realized what God was really like and they found that both terrifying and incredibly drawing. And the reason that's so important is because that's accurate. That's what God is really like. 
So God is amazing and alarming. Let's talk about both. I'm going to spend three quarters of the time on the first one. That God is alarming, and you and I, we really have to get that. Right? If, if you read this passage, that the Christians and non-Christians, that they would be struck with a certain kind of intense fear was intentional. Okay? In the providence of God, the reason this passage reveals God did this, that he struck these two people dead, was because he wanted people who believed in him and who already accepted Jesus and who loved God to be terrified. Okay? Now, Luke does not throw away these words idly. He says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And then what does it say? And now think about this phrase. Great fear seized. Fear intensified, great, and then that verb is the best part, seized the whole church. Now listen, I I hope you cannot emotionally connect with that phrase. I really hope that you can't. I mean, I really hope you'll be like, you know, honestly, I've never been greatly seized with fear that where like I couldn't move, I couldn't put two linear thoughts together. I was so overcome emotionally that I didn't know what to do. I was like flipping out. I had to get a diaper afterwards. Like I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you, but listen, there are people here who know what that means. Where like you, you can't think straight. You are terrified. I mean, terrified so much that you feel like something is wrapped around you and tied you up and you cannot move. That is the level of concern that verse is talking about. Okay? And then notice he says the exact same thing in verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And then by the time you get to verses 13, and no one else, no one dared join them. Nevertheless, lots of people joined them. Right? And so if, if you have a sentiment where you're like, oh, God would never want us to be like concerned. He's this loving dad. Listen. I submit exhibit A into evidence. I don't have to tell you, right? Okay. Now, what this means is there are some very significant misunderstandings. I and mean, one misunderstanding is Target is a very poorly named store. But besides that, that's not a big misunderstanding, right? I mean, that's a little misunderstanding unless you go in with your firearms and get arrested because you think it's a shooting range. But, but what is the biggest? Like, what is the biggest misunderstanding in all of humanity, in all of creation, among all people throughout all time? The Bible is very clear about what that is. What the greatest misunderstanding that all humans have in all places, in all times, at all moments, in every way, all the time. And it is very clear that we do not actually believe that God is the sovereign Lord. That's what it is. We do not actually, in this part— You don't like my t-shirt? Sorry. And, like, in, like, deeply believe that God is the undisputed, absolutely control king who is the disinterested judge of all men and women, though he is the intensely interested, compassionate, and empathetic father— and creator. We don't believe that, and it is important. In fact, not only does it say right above this, I mean, if you look at the passage in its context, there, before Ananias and Sapphira give their land, there's other believers that are giving land at the very end of chapter 4, and right before that is that prayer, right? Right after there's the persecution, all the apostles get together and they pray, Sovereign Lord, Why do the nations—they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against you? And all these powers that be think they can stop you. And then you laugh at them. Won't you give us strength? And won't you produce signs and wonders? Now think about this for a second. I mean, honestly, think about this for a second. They just prayed that God's presence would be so powerful among them. They really wanted God to be part of their lives. They really wanted God to do things in their midst. They prayed that God would do something supernatural, that he would do signs and wonders. And what was the first sign and wonder that God did right after that prayer? (coughs) Yeah. This sword has two edges, the presence of God. The problem with the presence of God is that God is present. That's the problem with the presence of God. 
I mean, like, listen, you might think, you might be like, Nick, I've, I've always been wanting to be part of like an awesome church that like we loved God and God was like moving and you could tell and people's lives were being changed and like miracles were happening. And, like we cared and we were generous and we were supporting people in our community. And I mean, it was just, I always want, I mean, are you, okay, let's time out. Are you sure you want that? Because when God's spirit moves through a place so that he can display himself, you know what he also does? He purifies the message of the display of who he is with judgment and discipline. Because when you go, I want God, I want to display you, God goes, awesome, here's why I'm in, you better say that. Because when these people came forward, we're like, yeah, that's cool. He was like, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. You, you have engaged in a serious misunderstanding. Does that make sense? You don't have to say anything. But I mean, you could say, when people read this passage, so what do they still say, right? They still say, but honestly, like, he had to kill him. Like, like Jeroboam in the Old Testament, like, did all kinds of terrible idolatries or whatever. And like, God gave him leprosy. And then Jeroboam was like, I'm really sorry. And then he took the leprosy away. Like, and then these people, they just flat die. Like, what is the deal with that? Okay, yeah, I got you. Um, <laughs> and the text says, right, it tells us that it t- it's very clear that greed was the motive, but that lying to God was the reason. And that because greed freely led to lying to God, it was not faith that had filled their hearts. <laughs> but Satan is the words Peter uses, Peter uses. Because the fear of God should have interrupted the flow of one to the other. I mean, think, think about this. Even if you believe in Jesus and you've loved Jesus for a long time and you've sought to have your life come into conformity with his will and you know that that's a beautiful and great thing and you're trying to do it, there are still all kinds of sins cooking in you, right? You know. Right? There's greed, and there's lust, and there's envy, and there's sloth, and there's all kinds of mur- anger, and all kinds of, it's all cooking in there somewhere. And I get, I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to pull out the weeds, and you're even using that little thing you stick down to try to get the root. But man, those dandelions are still coming back. It's May. It's just the way it is. And you can fight, and you can fight, but listen, um, they're cooking up, and at some moment, that, that mind-altering fragrance is going to come across your spiritual nose, and you're going to be like, I want that. Envy's going to come up, and you're going to be like, I want to feel envious, and I have the right to feel envious. Or you're going to be angry at somebody, like, I have the right to be angry at you. Or lust is going to be, I have the right to possess that. Right? And, and you're going to, it's going to be like, and at that moment, what is going to shut that down? Right? Because those sins are going to cook up, and they're going to get in after you, and you're going to have you're, and you're going to feel like you want that. And at, and at that moment, what's going to shut it down? What has the ability to get in there and be like, uh-uh, nope. And honestly, listen, it's not going to be because Jesus is your buddy. It's, it's just not going to be that. And you, might, and you might be like, well, lots of people are good and they don't have to fear God. Well, yeah, right. But there's a moment where saving face, and internal pride in your own morality. There are limits to all of that, this stuff. And there's, there are some points where the fear of God is what is required. A wake-up call is required. A wake-up call to reality. Because here's what you need, we need to realize. Because we're embodied, our sensory experience feels more real to us than anything else. Feels more real than anything else. That's why we do stuff all the time. We know what the result is going to be. We know it's going to be bad. You know, like, how many people get into a relationship with me? I knew where that was going, but I— Exactly. Because our sensory experience is so acute to us, it feels more real to us than 2 plus 2 equals 4, which is true. But it's an abstract object. You don't feel it. You don't touch it. You don't blah, blah, blah. blah. It's just there. So, blah. And you see, this is the problem with the fear of the Lord. If God doesn't kill you, you don't feel it. And so if you don't believe it, you're leaving God with precious few options. But what God's interest is, is that we would realize, we would learn, we would know that he is the sovereign Lord.
that we would absolutely know it, and that we would know that there are some lines that the disinterested ruler of all things is not going to let go because he will be known. And in this case, it was that they would lie to him. And the way he says it in verse 9 is, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? That's a really important idea. There's a place in Luke where Jesus is just about to come into his ministry. He's out in the desert, and the devil comes to tempt him. And one of the temptations is this one. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Right? Seven-eighths of Satan's speech there is from the Bible. Right? And so what Satan is saying is, listen, his promise, right, in the Bible about how God treats his people, and you are supposedly preeminently his, right? You're the son of God. And this is what he said he does with his people. So if you jump off the temple, you're not going to hit the ground. And the city of Jerusalem is going to know, and they're going to know you're the son of God, and it's going to be great. So why don't you do it? And Jesus' response is, also in the Bible is another line. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, why is Satan wrong here? This is a much more efficient way to demonstrate that somebody is the Messiah. I mean, Jesus didn't have 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 a three-year ministry. You just jump off the temple. You don't hit the ground. Everybody kind of gets it because you can float. And boom, off we go, right? Satan's got a good idea, right? And here's why Jesus knows. Here's what Jesus knows. He knows that it is fundamentally wrong to test God, and he will not even test God with one of God's own promises. Now think about that for a second. It's one thing to test God. There's lots of people who tested God, right? You did probably this week, maybe. But the the point is, is that Jesus, Jesus will not test God with one of God's own explicit promises. And here's why. Because testing is by its very definition, the opposite of worship. You test somebody to figure out whether they are trustworthy and good. Worship is when you believe and express that somebody is trustworthy and good. Now listen, if you meet some new joker who wants to take you out, and you're like, you know, and I need to figure out who this guy is and get him in a situation where he might, uh, you don't like that? That's, you're cool. Um, it, sorry, I got thrown a little bit there. Um, right, you, you might need to test a person because people aren't trustworthy. <laughs> they're, they're not. I mean, I remember, I remember when I dated girls, one of the things I tried to do was to be able to meet their family and to watch how they treated their parents and to watch how she treated her dad. And if she had younger siblings, how did she treat her younger siblings? Because that's how she was going to treat me if we ever got married. She might like me now, but the day is going to come where she can't, you know, I'm, I'm just part of the family and she's not trying to impress me. What, what was her character really like? So I, I mean, I wasn't mean about it, but I specifically tried to get in situations to watch how she would respond to other people. And I don't apologize for that because men and women, especially when they're dating, are liars and they need to be tested. I was just, just <laughs> but the Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie. She's not. Testing God isn't appropriate, right? Now, you can ask God to meet you on something, and I think sometimes it's good if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus to be like, hey, you should pray. That thing that's going on, you should pray and ask God, like, maybe he'll do something. But here's the difference between that and a test. It's a test if if God doesn't do what you say, he's bad or not there. That's a test. And that is not a prayer that is blasphemy. A prayer is when you say, God, would you please— would you do this or help me be part of this? Blah, blah, blah. And God can do what God wants to do. And you accept that he is the creator and you're the creature. And God often in that situation is enormously generous and does incredible things. And he is apparently, biblically speaking, much more inclined to do so when our prayers are not veiled tests. Jesus seemed to have had this one straight. And It seems like God the Holy Spirit wanted the church to get this straight at its outset. 
but you can still ask this question. Okay, yeah, Nick, so maybe he killed them. Why did he kill them? I mean, in that sense, fire, they were like nobodies. I mean, there were people in that city that had killed Jesus. There were Roman oppressors that were ruining people's lives. They were like, no kidding, murderers. I mean, it's like a country, definitely there were some, and so on. Like, God kills Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, I mean, think about this. So we read this, we're like, <coughs> oh, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they lied to God. They must be terrible. They're probably not any worse than you or me. I mean, think about this. This would be like we're having this meeting and we're like, hey, we're going to build like a community center for the city so that we can blah, blah, blah. And we need to raise $3 million. And, some, and people give gifts and they like sell their beach homes or whatever. And somebody comes up and they're like, I sold the property for $200,000 you know, $200, and here's $200,000. And I'm like, hey, I got a Trulia app and you sold it for $275,000, bad boy. And he just drops it dead right there. Boom. And I'm like, that's an that's awesome free app, right? <laughs> Probably wasn't appropriate. But you know what I mean? You'd be like, you'd be like, Nick, what? he gave $200,000. Like, these are not bad people. I mean, he's, he, what? Uh, mm, uh, right? You, you wouldn't be like, if we're going to, like, really? This whole room, think about all of us, okay? And all the stuff we don't know about each other. That's the guy that deserves to die. Okay now, right? Yeah. Right? But yet, that's what God the Holy Spirit chooses to do. Make no mistake about it. Right? You see, the reason it's them and not anyone else is because they're the church, not the world. The church is not the world. The world is the object of God's redemption. The church carries and displays the message of salvation. And so the purity, the purity of the world can wait for its judgment to the end. The world's not communicating anything about God. But the church is. And so the message of the church in the world matters right now. God can't just judge us as the church then, because the significance of our work is now. If God waited to the very end to judge the church and to judge the world— how he will end up judging the world would be massively different because we would be so much more ineffectual. God shows in the scriptures that he comes after us in a way that he doesn't come after the world because we display him. And the world doesn't. And that can wait. But this can't. You see this, this isn't just, this isn't an Act 5, isn't just an Acts 5 reality. There's this theme throughout the whole Bible that God, God judges his people specifically in relationship to whether or not they display him accurately. Like, you're like, why does he judge his people at this time and not that time? And it seems really strange and kind of like almost arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. He judges his people specifically in relationship to the responsibility he's given them to display him accurately. That is the principle. And if, you, if you're part of his people and you lead his people, it's even more stringent. And so in James 3, for example, he says, listen, he's speaking to the church. He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly, meaning more strictly than the rest of the church. Right? That's, that's serious. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, I've heard people like, well, I'm not going to be, I'm going to teach in church. No, it just means don't be bad at it. Meaning, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. None of us are God. But if you teach Christians, you should try to get it straight. Like, you should take it really seriously. You should work really hard at studying and trying to understand it. You should try to find a mentor. And you should, I mean, you don't, we don't do it the way you put on a Packer party, right? Dip's bad. The dip's bad. Who cares, right? Except people who like dip. But in Ezekiel 34, for example, um, the people of Israel are going into exile. The people of God are getting judged because they don't display God accurately to the surrounding nations. But who does God specifically attack? He doesn't even attack the kings, and the kings were bad. He attacks the priests. He's like, here's why my people are going into exile. Because you all didn't lead them spiritually, and instead you fattened yourselves on their hides. And you did whatever you wanted so that you did better, and they were not formed in godliness. You didn't teach them. You didn't lead them. And he says, so I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe you out, and I'm going to give them a good shepherd. Right? In 1 Sam, Samuel 2, <coughs> 
there's the tabernacle of God and all of Israel has to come to it and give sacrifices. And the two guys that were overseeing it were Hophni and Phinehas. They were sons of this guy named Eli. And they, they didn't like boiled meat, apparently. Which I get it. I like roasted meat better. Like that's not, that's not controversial for me. I lived in the South. And, but what they would do is, is the, some of the sacrifices actually commanded that, the, that things be boiled and then the fat be burned. And there's a certain, certain way that it was done. And these guys are showing up at the, they're, they're cutting up the sacrifice <coughs> before, <coughs> one second, before it's even offered to God as an offering. And they're like, hey, I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need the loins and the back strap. You know, and, and these people are like, look, just let us, just let us go in and at least burn the fat off. We won't even boil it. Just let us even do that. And they're like, look, you give it to me now. I'm gonna go get my sword. I'm gonna take it from you. Right? This is the priest, right? And they're like, okay. And then meanwhile, apparently there were women that were working in the tabernacle doing some jobs. And it says that they were sleeping with them, right? And so God shows up. He's like, he's like through Samuel, like this little kid, right? So there's this little kid that comes from like this infertile woman and he like gets dumped on Eli and like he's like nine and God tells him he's going to kill Eli's whole family for this. And so Samuel's like, so, and Eli's like his daddy. He's like grandpa daddy. And he's like grandpa daddy. Um, and, and Eli's like, you need to tell me what the Lord told you. You're a prophet. That's how this works. He goes, God's going to kill your whole family. Ugh. <laughs> and so Eli's like, uh. so, and here's the thing. So God does kill those two guys. But he kills Eli too, and, and, which is interesting because if you read the passage, Eli finds out he goes to his two sons. He says, listen, guys, I heard what you're doing. You can't be doing that. That's crazy. Like you have to do what God says, right? So you're like, Eli, way to get in there. Way to like, you know, way to say something. Way to, right? No, you know what God says? He says, you're going to die too, and here's why. Because you respected your sons more than me. Now that is a very important verse. Very important verse. Because if there is anything we would think that God would allow us to be interested rather than disinterested about morally. It's got to be our kids, right? Doesn't it? Where we would not do what God says, not do what's true and full of integrity, and do what we think is going to get us what we want. I mean, if there's any, anything, anywhere where we could do that, it's got to be with our kids. And God is super explicit. He said, you're going to die because you respect, you didn't stop them. You didn't stop them. You yelled at them, but you didn't stop them from oppressing other people in the very temple of God where the, sa- the sacred thing is supposed to happen, the transacts between God and people, and they were doing that, and you didn't stop them. You're going to die. And it's his own sons. Do you see that God is disinterested? He's, dis- he's not uninterested, but he's disinterested. Same thing in Leviticus, right? These two guys, Nadab and Abihu, they had just been sworn in as the priests of God. This is before 1 Samuel 2. And they go, we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to burn some incense to God, like an act of worship. But it was specifically not what God said was supposed to be done. They go in there, they do that, and fire comes out and burns them alive and kills them both. And then you know what God says to Aaron? (coughs) Who's their father? He says, you are not allowed to mourn for these two men that have died. Why? Right? I mean, like, how mean can God be, right? I mean, this man's two sons are, are killed. God kills them. And he says to this guy, he says, don't mourn them. You need to stay in the temple, and you need to fulfill your roles, and your sons need to be taken out of the camp because they're unclean dead bodies. And, and he didn't go to his son's funeral. He didn't see him buried. And that was God's specific commandment to Aaron. Now, why is that? Now, it's, it's partly because of some other details I can't get into in the passage, but it's because it was the same thing. God's integrity is more important than your son's. See the point there? He, God demanded of Aaron. He demanded of Eli. He demanded of, he demands of all the shepherds of God. He demands of every teacher ever in the church, every leader, that they would live absolutely clearly that God is the sovereign Lord and they are disinterested. They're totally, they're not uninterested in anyone, especially their children, but they are disinterested in that they don't try to rewrite reality. What is true and they don't get rid of their integrity no matter what even their own children do. 
And not only is that true about those who lead God's people, but it's very clear as you read the New Testament, it's true of the whole church, everybody who believes in Jesus. Most people, if you've been going to church your whole life, you've never even heard of the concept of church discipline. You've never heard of it. But throughout the New Testament, it's very clear. The elders of the church, if somebody lives in open, abject, very clear, unrepentant sin, in the face of everybody, does whatever they want, they are supposed to get confronted. And if they will not repent after numerous times to try to invite them to repentance, they are to be kicked out. Very explicit. And there's this point where Paul writes back to the Corinthian church. Now, it's funny because this is 1 Corinthians, but clearly from this, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians because there was another letter before this. But he says this, he says, I've written to you in my letter, meaning the letter they got before this, not to associate with sexually immoral people, right? And he goes, now, not at all meaning the people of this world, meaning people who aren't Christians is what he means by that. Now, here's a very interesting thing. I want you to look at the people we are not supposed to discipline, but who we are supposed to be in relationship with and in community with. I mean, if this doesn't make you angry and not come back, I don't know it will, right? Listen to this. Sexually immoral people from above just catch all immoral. Everybody's immoral. The greedy swindlers or idolaters. It's a great list, right? Those are the people you are not supposed to reject. But we're supposed to be in community with. Why? Well, see, if you understand the logic of why God does what he does, it's very clear. We are supposed to be bringing the message of who God is and the plan of his redemption to those people. You can't very well shun or kick out or not talk to or not relate with people, the very people you are explicitly sent to to share the gospel with and to invite to God and to tell them that he is disinterested in his moral truth, but he is deeply, he's not uninterested, but deeply interested in saving and redeeming and loving them. And so therefore, you have to hang out with and eat with swindlers. And Jesus invited himself to whose house for dinner? Well, lots of bad people, but Zacchaeus is the one that comes to mind from Luke. But then he turns around and he says, listen, but I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is, and notice, it's the same list, who is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do you see that? What's the— what? That might just sound like crazy. So wait, wait. People who don't believe in Jesus, who are terrible, we're supposed to be really nice to. Yes. And we're supposed to tell them about God. Yes. Can we tell them they're being idiots? Uh-huh. Yeah, but you have to stay in relationship with them. But you have to be there. You can't. Okay. And then the people who say they're Christians, who like come to church and stuff, who are the same way, we can't. Right. Okay. What if they give? Well, Anna's fire got killed. I don't know what to tell you. See, the, I, so why is this, right? Here's why. Because God's name and who he is has to be displayed accurately to the very people God is reaching out to in the world, which is everyone. And if people are in the church and they call themselves Christians and they aren't, the most loving thing we could possibly do to everyone is to disabuse them of the notion as best we can that they're Christians. And so if you say you're a Christian and you have no interest in obeying Jesus, I'm supposed to say, listen, you should obey Jesus. And if you're like, I'm not going to obey Jesus. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to buddy. This is exactly what Matthew 18 says. And we both go, hey, you, know, you say you're a Christian, love that, really believe in you are. You should obey Jesus. And you go, you know what? Stop judging me. I don't have to do your thing. That's your interpretation, blah, blah, blah. Awesome. Got a couple more people. Nope. The Bible explicitly tells us that we're supposed to say, you can't come to church here anymore until you sort this out. The minute you're ready to say, that was wrong, I need Jesus, you're in. But as long as you're like, back off, don't judge me, you can't tell me what to do, blah, 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 blah. The job of the local church is to say, sorry, you can't come to church here. Why? One, it's the best thing for, for you. Right? It's necessary for us because there's not a lot of integrity in like saying this is what God is like and then pretending we don't know each other. 
but also, and the main issue is because we are supposed to be displaying what Jesus is like to the world. And if we, lie, if we can lie to God and go, you know, I'm a Christian, whatever. I do what I want. God's a little snuggly bear. He's going to approve of me no matter what. That's just a big lie. It's just a big lie. And we can't do that. You can't have any truth or any integrity. You can have deep empathy for people. And that will lead you to approach them very humbly and very lovingly. And many times, there's, there's one guy in this church that I had to do church discipline with because of some things I'm not going to share. And I approached him, I think, seven or eight times. And a couple of other elders approached them a bunch of other times. And we kept calling him. We're like, listen, if you don't, if you don't work this, listen, if you don't do something with this, you cannot be here. And he wasn't here for a little while. We kept calling him. And we kept having lunch with him. And we kept talking with him. And finally, he turned it around. He was like, you know what? You're right. You're right. And he came back. And he's here now. And that's awesome. But no, you don't, don't, don't miss the point. Here's the point. That is not shunning people. That is what loving communities do. And the main reason it must be done is because Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord, who is terrifying and yet amazing, must be displayed to the whole world as he really is. And that's really going to cost us. It's really going to hurt us. And you got to remember, we follow the one who was crucified for us. And we are going to have to fight with our own self-righteousness. We're going to have to figure out what it looks like to do that with humility. We're going to have to be very judicious about who we approach and who we don't. The main thing, if you're a member of this church, is you should not elect somebody to our elder board that you don't think can do this well who either A, doesn't have the guts to do it, or B, will do it like a mean person, not trying to win over the person that they're interacting with. If you don't think somebody can do that and has the courage to do it, they have no business being on a church's elder board, for example. And so, you know, we're going to have elder elections in not too long. It's one of the questions you should ask yourself. There's like— 174 more things I'd love to say about this, but let's, um, let me end with something fairly simple. When you, when you think that way, it's very easy for people to slide into thinking that because God is intentionally alarming, that what that means is you better straighten up and fly right or you're going to hell, okay, or hell if you're from the north. And you might feel like, you know, that's just what I thought church was about. I, I just assumed it was a bunch of self-righteous people getting together. And now after this, everybody's going to congratulate each other that, you know, they're not the kind of people that church discipline would happen to. And probably those other churches don't even do it. And we're all better than them and blah, 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 and feel good about ourselves. That is, that may be true about us. And if it is, I'll preach about that next week. Right? I hear a whiff of that. We'll just deal with that. But the dynamic by—so remember, God is interested in you. Right? He's interested in you. He wants to redeem. He wants to forgive. He wants to draw you to himself. He wants that. So then, wait a second. But if God is morally disinterested, he's not going to say bad is good and good is bad. He's not going to compromise his integrity. He's going to be fully truthful and good. So what, where does that leave us? And it does not leave us where if you're bad, he's going to judge you and you're dead. Though it could have been that way. But it's not that way. The difference is God in his disinterestedness will not say good is evil. So what do we who are evil do? And it's very clear in the Bible. He says over and over, he says, just don't be proud. Just don't be proud. Because you see, a very bad person, like me, okay, I can be mended by God if I trust him. But even a good person who is proud cannot be mended. And even that which they do that would be good will turn ugly and foul. What God demands, what he demands of every human being such that they could be forgiven and received is humility. Which he uses in other terms, he just calls repentance and faith. I was wrong. God, you were right. Lead me, teach me, save me, redeem me, help me. Because God's love is not unconditional. 
It's disinterested. Disinterested love can never be literally unconditional, but it is overwhelmingly, fluidly flowing towards the humble. Anyone. There's this passage in the Old Testament, in the, in the Ten Commandments, actually, I think it is, where God says to those who don't follow me, who don't believe, the, the sins of the father will be visited on the, to the fourth generation, meaning that if the next generation doesn't turn to God, but keeps doing what their father did and just uses their father as an excuse to be just as big a jerk as he was and confirms that they don't just get their guilt, they get some of their dad's. And it, as long as there's not repentance in the line, it, it'll, it'll pile up four generations. And you know what the next line is? But to anyone who believes and trusts me, God says, there will be blessing piled up to the hundredth generation. You see the point there? The point there isn't everybody's in. Everybody's awesome. I like you just the way you are. And you can be proud and mean and ugly and not believe and not know I'm the sovereign Lord. That's totally fine. That's not what he says. What he says is this. He says, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference in this passage? Here's the difference in this passage. God, through Peter, through his voice, strikes two people dead to protect the reputation of his own name so that all people could be saved. And then a few verses later, God, through Peter, through his shadow, heals everyone who comes to God and humbly presents himself before him. They just show up. And his, it's the only place in the Bible where his shadow heals anything. I mean, it's weird. It's a weird passage. That's not normally how it happens. That's not how healing happens. And yet, in this passage, anybody who presented themselves, if, if just they caught a little bit of the six o'clock, you know, his, his little tuft of hair sticking up, caught the edge of your cheek, boom, the power of God flowed into that person who presented himself and redeemed and saved and healed them. It is not, it's not good or bad. It's never good or bad. It's always humble, proud. It's always who will come to me and who won't. Who will trust me and who will reject me. Who will worship me and who will test me. Who, that's always the dynamic. And what that means is it doesn't matter where you are. Right this second, you can go either way. But what it also means is there is always a way back. There is always a way to God. There is always, there's always his desire to draw in love, save, help. And if, but he does it, he, listen, he does it as the sovereign Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, this is kind of an odd passage. It's not one we probably all have marked up in our Bibles. And some of us may want to use Sharpie markers to highlight it. But I pray that you would use it to turn our hearts towards you and to humble us in such a way as that the full weight and refreshment of your redemption and healing and salvation can flow in our lives in a way that we really didn't think was possible. And that by fearing you in that way, you would wipe out all other fears. And that you would do great things in us, we pray in Jesus' name.